Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I would like for us to take a look at our gospel reading from Luke chapter 10. Many of us may be somewhat familiar with this passage already, where Christ is sending out these 72 disciples. And yet, I think there are a number of interesting things in this passage which are highly relevant to us today as we consider how to be a worshiping, missional community of faith in the 21st century, which seeks to follow Jesus and live out his call. For those of you who do not know this, this is our mission statement, to be a worshiping, missional community of faith. Who are these 72 disciples? While some have attempted to provide a detailed list, you can go online and find detailed lists of who all these people were. There is not really much evidence, however, in the text, which will give us these details we are longing for. However, we notice that while Jesus spent much of his time throughout the Gospels with the Twelve, who certainly dominate most of the narratives we have, his circle of disciples was much, much wider. We get a sense of this at times. For example, we see in John 6 that a number of these disciples leave and abandon Jesus because of his offensive words. Many more people are following Christ and joining him closely as he travels throughout the land of Israel, sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. Some see in the sending out of 72 the origins of further ordained ministry. While the 12 apostles are certainly at the center of this conversation, we later see in the book of Acts further ordained ministry develop in the life of the church, where we see those who are called to be presbyters, to preach the word, to live a life of prayer, those who are called to be deacons, who serve the poor, spread the gospel, catechize, and any other things which are necessary to make sure that the word, the ministry of word and prayer remains strong. It certainly makes sense that this concept of how we do ministry would be birthed in Jesus' teaching and in the life that he shared with his disciples. However, we don't see any of these details clearly laid out in our text today. Nonetheless, what is clear is that Jesus is empowering his ministers to go out and spread the gospel the good news of his kingdom, which he has been sharing with Israel. Up until now, it has been mainly Christ doing the work with his disciples, assisting, watching, attending. But here in this passage, Christ is now appointing these 72 people to go and get to work and share in this ministry that he has been doing with them. I would like to compare what he's doing here in this passage with an on-the-job training. He's taught them the principles many times before, but now it's their turn to get active and do the work, and for him to reflect with them as they do the work themselves. At the end of the passage, they, came, they come back and they share with him, this is how it went, and he processes it with them, teaching his disciples what it looks like to do this ministry when he is not going to be around anymore to do it with them. They will be called when he ascends into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father to continue the work that he has given them to do. And so he wants to make sure that they are trained in the essential principles of what this ministry should look like. 
As Christ teaches them these principles, I would like to look at some of them today and ask the question, what does it mean for us to be a worshiping missional community of faith? What kind of community does Christ envision? The principles I would like for us to look at this morning are three points. First, we are called to be a community of sharing the gospel. Second, we are called to be a community which shares in weakness. And third, we are called to be a community which shares peace. So our first point, a community of sharing the gospel. When Jesus sends us out into the the world to do the work he has called us to do, this involves sharing the good news of his gospel to the world. The very news of his kingdom that he was sharing, the news of who Christ was, of what he has accomplished by dying on the cross and raising again, the news that he is currently at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, building his church in spite of her many faults, and the news that one day he will soon come again to usher in a new world. All of these things are very good news and are the things he is calling us to continue sharing with the whole world. By sending out these disciples, Jesus shows that sharing is the gospel, which is sharing the gospel is something which will be essential to their call as they follow him. And the same applies to us. We are called to share what we've experienced in Christ with others. There is no church that does not share the gospel with those who have not yet heard it. This is an imperative part of what it means to be the church. And we must never grow weary in doing this task. As we take a deeper look at this point, I think we can see in this passage that Jesus is sharing a number of things with us about what it means to share the gospel with others. So let's take a deeper look. If you have a Bible with you, please open them with me to chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. If you do not have a Bible that's Uh, If you don't have a Bible or you don't have one that's good, please do take one of the ones that are scattered throughout the sanctuary in the back of the seats. There's also a pile of them out here in the narthex that you are free to take with you. First, in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think this is a very interesting point that is easy to forget. The image that Jesus uses is of harvesting, not of planting, not of persuading or convincing, but of harvesting. On Wednesday at our Connections Night, Deacon Stephen led a bunch of us to harvesting tomatoes and cucumbers. We came into our hoop houses at the back of the property in our back field, back that way, and I was amazed to see all of the hard work that has been done to prepare these beautiful vegetables which are ripe for the harvest. Now, some were not ready yet. Some were unfortunately too far gone and had already fallen on the ground to give their nutrients to a future harvest, but many vegetables were ripe for the picking. This is the image that Christ uses, and he describes the need to have faith in the Lord of the harvest, the one who sends the laborers, the one who oversees the whole operation. Jesus describes this harvest very poignantly as the Lord's harvest. And the Lord of the harvest, he knows what he is doing. And yet, he is calling us to be a part of it and to share in it, including being fervent in prayer to ask for those things which we discern to be necessary along the way. 
So as we go out this week to be a community which shares the gospel, I think that this can be a deep encouragement to us. In sharing the gospel, we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. We are tempted to forget this. We are tempted to think it is all on us. It is all on me. That we have to be the ones who persuade people to believe in Jesus. Please don't get me wrong. Being persuasive is a really wonderful thing. Being winsome and doing our best to share the gospel in a convincing way is a smart and loving thing that we should be doing. And yet, we cannot forget the Lord of the harvest. We cannot forget that he is already at work. He is preparing hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit. We cannot forget that he has already worked through many who have gone before us. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves. I would like to share with you something which illustrates this point that I, I think is actually not really that well known in the American church. While my wife and I were working as missionaries in Germany, one of the things we were privileged to experience was the increased significant wave of refugees coming to Western Europe from places like Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, and many other places. As waves of many of them Muslim refugees poured into Western Europe, fleeing war zones and other major problems, people, people were filled with fear. And yet, when they got there, what they found out, what many of them found out, myself included, was these people are really not all that bad. Many of them shared many of the aspects that I would call our Christian worldview. While they did not believe in Jesus, they certainly believed in being good people to their neighbors. Many of those things that disturb us about Western secular culture disturbed them too. And so as I got to know many of these refugees, we often became fast friends, a deep encouragement to each other as we worked to be faithful to God in an increasingly secular world. And yet, at the same time, something else happened, which was very interesting and unexpected, but I believe fits very well with what we are discussing today. Many Muslim refugees started to come to church. Many started to reach out to pastors and other Christians with requests to hear the gospel. They would often tell them that they had dreams where Jesus would show up to them and tell them, go to church and ask them about the gospel. Sometimes they had dreams where the Quran was in the desert, but the Holy Bible was the oasis, the source of water in the middle of everything. One former Muslim, now pastor, came to my seminary to share with us. He was from Pakistan. He was actually sent to be a mosque planter. Just like we like to send church planters, he was told, go as a refugee, plant mosques in Western Europe. And yet, the deep hospitality of Christians towards him brought him to a breaking point in which he started to doubt his faith. And in that time, Christ came and showed up to him in a dream and said, go to church and ask them about the gospel. All over the world, thousands and thousands of Muslims are having these experiences right now. They're coming to faith in Jesus Christ with stories like these. And in all of them, they are experiencing deep stories of the Lord of the harvest preparing their hearts for the gospel. But I think what's interesting is that in all of them, Jesus doesn't tell them the gospel. 
When he shows up in the dream, he doesn't say, here's the gospel. He says, go to the Christians. They will tell you the good news. That is how Jesus works. That is how he wants to work in his church today. That is what Christ is calling us to be a part of. And I think this illustrates to us this very point. God knows what he is doing. All of this work does not rely on us or our plans or our strategies. We get to be a part of what the sovereign Lord of the harvest is doing. So let us take heart. Let us be encouraged. This week, we are going to be around people who do not know the Lord, who do not know of his good news, who have not experienced the beauty and glory of his coming kingdom. And as we encounter these things, we doubt, we struggle. How could any of them actually come to accept this good news or even to hear it as good news? Many of us, often myself included, have lost faith that this happens. But last week, I was reflecting on this, and I noticed something very ironic. In my family and in my friend groups over the past 10 years, it is often those people who were the most vehemently opposed to the gospel, who gave me the most pushback, who have since come to know the Lord. People tell me the Bible doesn't make sense. Christians are hypocrites. How could anyone believe this? And yet, ironically, I can tell of one aunt. She used to tell me all of these things. We would have family gatherings, and she would just one point after another, just, Jared, this doesn't make sense. And then when I wanted to give an answer, she would move on to the next topic. And yet now she is a director of children's ministry at a church. I can tell of one uncle who used to complain to me on the phone when I would speak to him, that Christians are hypocrites. Churches don't practice what they preach. And yet now he volunteers in youth ministry. I have one friend, she used to tell me how the message of Jesus was BS. I'm trying to keep it PG-13 this week, or maybe PG even. She would say, this doesn't make sense. And now she sent me this week videos of church services she's attending all around the world on vacation and how she's experiencing the beauty and majesty of the church and all of its different expressions throughout the world. We must remember the Lord of the harvest. He is working in so many ways that we cannot imagine. We are called to share this gospel, to be a part of his harvest, but we can be encouraged it is much bigger than ourselves. A second thing which Jesus shares with us about sharing the gospel in this passage is the importance of hospitality. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 7, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now there's much to say about what Jesus is saying in this passage, but what I would like to emphasize is the image of how ministry is actually occurring in this passage. One of the principles that Jesus shares is that ministry, living out the call of Christ, happens at the dinner table. Truly sharing in meals and sharing in the lives of those Christ is calling us to minister to. What's interesting is the image that Christ shares at the heart of his ministry is not the street preacher, the street preacher who preaches from the curbside but doesn't know the people that he is ministering to. Christ goes across the countryside. He's preaching wherever he goes. 
and his ministry is filled with stories of meals and staying at the houses of those who he is visiting. Now, of course, Christ does preach to many that he does not end up knowing. However, the stories that we get time and time again are the people that Jesus takes time to get to know and share in their lives. He is accused constantly of spending way too much time with drunks, prostitutes, tax collectors, unbelievers, all other kinds of people. And yet this shows his heart for the people that he is ministering to. Sharing the gospel is sharing in the lives of those people God is calling you to serve. And so as we share the gospel in this 21st century world, one that is increasingly post-Christian, secular, seemingly uninterested in our message, I think that this principle can guide us back to the essentials of what we need to remember about sharing the gospel. The days of Billy Graham may be mostly over. Christians no longer have the platform that they once had. And unfortunately, when they get that platform, they often misuse it. People don't seem as interested in just showing up at a random church on Sunday. Every once in a while it happens, but very few people wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go to church this morning. And yet the Lord of the harvest is still working and he is calling us to share more than just this message that we have, but to share our lives with those around us. I truly believe that if we do this, if we do this ministry the way that Christ did, the way that he calls his disciples to do, we will be surprised at how effective it will be. But I know that many of you share the feeling of how difficult this can be. We are a church of about 300 people on Sunday. There are so many people for me to share my life with. And most of them know Jesus already. It is hard work to juggle all of these relationships that we have. Yet we have so many neighbors, so many friends, so many family, and, in the, and so many in this community who do not know the gospel of Christ. And not only have they not rejected it, they're often unfamiliar with it. We take it for granted. We think people know what we believe. Those days are over. People often do not know what we believe. When we get to know them, they will find out, we will find out that they have rarely had the opportunity to actually hear this gospel, the thing that brings us here every Sunday. Too often they've been distracted by Christians being judgmental, hypocritical, or outright uninterested in sharing their lives with those who see differently. Often Christian communities have not created spaces where people can truly wrestle with the Christian faith with all of their questions. Doubt is often demonized. Questions are often avoided. People are left in a situation where they do not really get the chance to actually engage with the person of Jesus Christ, often distracted by our flaws. Let us work to be a worshiping missional community of faith which truly shows hospitality to people in our community that are struggling for these, with these issues. Let us be a community where people can actually struggle with their questions and hear what we believe, where people can see Christ in our fellowship, where by sharing our lives, we can share this Christ that we have come to know. And yet, as Pastor Dan has often said here on Sunday, many of us have already memorized it, if you are sitting here and do not feel comfortable coming forward, know that we long for the day that you will come to know this Jesus that we know 
and share in this meal that we share. The third thing that Jesus shares about sharing the gospel is the role of judgment. We just got done talking about how we're not called to be judgmental, but instead to share our lives with those who we are called to minister to. And yet, Jesus says in verse 10 through 12, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So then Christ goes on to pronounce judgment over a number of cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, which have rejected him in his ministry. So the question is, what exactly is going on when Jesus shares these words of judgment? I think that it is tempting to misunderstand the nuance of what is happening here in the life and work of Jesus. Within the nearer context of Christ's ministry, he's been going throughout the land of Israel and yet being rejected as the Messiah. Much of God's people who, has been, who God has been working through, and they have been waiting eagerly for thousands of years for this Messiah to come, they reject him and his followers. As the disciples are sent out, they begin to experience the same rejection that Jesus has been experiencing. And yet the gospel goes out to all the ends of the earth through Jewish disciples, such as these, who hear the gospel, repent, and follow Jesus. So I think we need to be careful when we read this passage. The context of judgment is deeply rooted in this story of Israel. We are dealing with something different typically when people reject the gospel that we've shared. We shouldn't be flippant about this and be eager, excited. Let's wipe the dust off our feet. Eager to pass judgment over those who we talk to about Jesus. And yet, in this is a principle of ministry that Christ is teaching to his disciples. He's preparing them. When you go out into the world to share this gospel, you will face the same rejection that I have faced. So while we live with an eagerness to share good news, we cannot be shy about the fact that we believe that Christ one day will not just be Savior, but he is also the king of our lives and he will stand in judgment of those who stand before him. But the good news is this, the judge is also the same lawyer who will defend us if we put our trust in him. So now I would like to talk about our second point today, that we are called to be a community which shares in weakness. What do I mean by this? In verse 4, Jesus tells us, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. He tells them to rely on the food that they are given by those who are hosting them. So we've already taken time to talk about hospitality and how it's at the center of Christ's ministry. But here we are given much more than this. He calls us to a state of weakness. He says in verse 3, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This image is an interesting one. One preacher that I listened to this week who shared similar thoughts preached on this passage, he talked about how this passage reminds him of whenever he sees a deer on the side of the road. When car meets deer, car wins. This is the kind of image that Jesus is, is using of ministry when we go out to share the gospel. 
This is a story of Christ appointing people to do this work, which actually echoes many of the other stories that we encounter throughout the scripture. For example, we encounter Moses when he stands before the burning bush and is appointed to go to Pharaoh to speak for God's people. And Moses talks about his weakness. Lord, how can I do this? I'm not a good speaker. No one will listen to me. But the Lord desires to work through his weakness. We encounter the people of Israel before the walls of Jericho, far too weak to do this task which they've been appointed to do, to conquer such a city as this, outnumbered. And yet the Lord calls them to march around the city and trust in him. The Lord desires to work through their weakness. We encounter Gideon, who has an army of 32,000 people who are eager and ready to fight the Lord's enemies, and that the Lord tells him, no, these are far too many people. In the end, Gideon ends up with 300 people and not even the cream of the crop. The Lord desires to work through his weakness. We encounter David, the youngest of his brothers, tending the sheep, not even in the room when they're talking about him, hardly able to be considered as king compared to this big Saul. David is short and weak. And yet the Lord does not consider these things. He cares about his heart. He desires to work through his weakness. We encounter Isaiah, who when called to be a prophet in a is aware of his deep sinfulness and unworthiness to stand before the throne of God. He's lifted up in a vision, stand, stands before the throne, and he cries out due to his sin, deeply afraid. And the angel tells him, God has atoned for your sins. God is working atonement for Isaiah so that he can be able to preach the word of God that God has for his people. He desires to work through his weakness. There are so many more stories that we could talk about in the Bible when we encounter this theme. God works through weakness time and time again. Not only is he not bothered or prevented by their weakness, he instead promises to show up and that we can rely on his power to show us and remind us that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so here in this passage, as Jesus appoints these people to go out and do the ministry he's calling them to do, we see this very pattern repeated. But this time, Christ anticipates it as a lesson for them. He makes it a core part of his on-the-job training. To be a disciple of Jesus, they must learn this fact. God desires to work through your weakness. He tells them to purposefully go without anything that they need. They must rely on the gifts of others. He is nailing this principle into their brains. So they will see that God works through weakness. So they know that it is part of his grand strategy for the kingdom of God. So as we are called to be a worshiping missional community of faith today, let us think about what this means for our ministry. Christ does not envision a ministry where a select few are gifted and powerful and everyone else sits by watching. He envisions a ministry where we must rely on each other. We must carry each other's burdens. We must serve each other's needs. He envisions the body of Christ. People bring different gifts and different strengths, but they also bring their weaknesses. But these weaknesses are not shared out of necessity, but are actually parts of the strategy. At some point in our lives, we will be the one being fed, 
or the one doing the feeding, but each and every one of us in this room is called to be a sheep among the lamb, among the wolves. This is how God wants to work. So where are we standing in the way of this? Where are we keeping this weakness to ourselves, afraid to share it with others? Are we afraid that it will keep him from working through us? Are we afraid to rely on the strength and gift of others? This is pride and this is standing in the way of the work that God longs to do in our lives. Whether we are rich or poor, whether we have all the resources or we are struggling to get by, each and every one of us is called to be a part of a different kind of community where we don't glory in our strengths but share in the body of Christ. So I challenge you this week to embrace your weakness. See it as a vital part of what God is doing in your life and share it with somebody. Not too long ago, we celebrated Monday Thursday, the Thursday before Easter, and we had a foot washing time in our service where we remembered Christ's last night with his disciples before his crucifixion, where he taught them this vital principle of serving and being served by one another. And I must admit that the hardest part for me was not washing people's feet, but letting my own feet be washed. I just wanted it to be over with. Please don't scrub that hard. Please just, you know, dump some water over it and we'll be done. It was humiliating. It was humbling. But it was an experience where Christ met me. Let yourself be served by others. Share your weakness. Paul sums this up perfectly in 2 Corinthians 12 when he writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So now this brings me to my third and final point. We are called to be a community which shares peace. In verse 5, Christ says, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So this verse is one that I often heard in the missionary world. It's actually a strategy that missionaries use when they enter into a place, a new place of the gospel. They look for people of peace, persons of peace. Those are the people that will be open to the gospel when one enters into a mission place, helpful, interested, willing to work with missionaries, whether, often whether they believe in the gospel or not, to help provide a platform for the gospel. So if you ever talk with missionaries, you might hear this word be thrown around. I think this is very valid, very valid thought, but I would like to emphasize a different aspect today of this passage, which I believe is highly relevant for us as we seek out to live this call to be a worshiping missional community of faith. One could say that the image that Christ describes here is actually deeply sacramental. The disciples of Christ are called to be vessels of the very peace which God is offering to this world. In Hebrew, peace, shalom, the very state of peace, harmony, tranquility, which will ultimately be found in the coming kingdom of God. Christ desires us to be representatives and a foretaste of this kingdom. He tells his disciples to announce when people see their works that the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
because it truly has. The peace we offer is not our own. I, Jared Wenzel, am not particularly a source of peace. Tranquility and harmony to this world, as wonderful as I would like to think that I am. And yet, Christ is calling you and me to be a source of peace to this world. He is calling us to be a foretaste of his kingdom. And when we do this, it's not just good words that we share. He describes it as a force, as a power, which will be working in the lives of those that receive it. This is why I say sacramental. God is calling us to be a visible expression of an invisible reality. He is bringing shalom into the lives of those we share the gospel with. And yet, how often is this not the case? How often, I'm going to use strong words here that are still PG. How often do people experience Christians as more of a stench of disgust rather than as a pleasant aroma of shalom? One thought that comes to mind as I share this is how over the years I've heard from many waiters who work on Sunday, how much they dread the Sunday church crowd. The tips are small. The people are grouchy, probably because they wait so long to eat because of church. And often there are so many people who, interestingly enough, look at the staff and communicate this judgment. You're working on Sunday. How could you be working on Sunday and not going to church? And yet, they're eating there on Sunday. I share this anecdote because I think it's just a simple example that I've heard so many times. How can we be a source of peace and shalom for the world around us? How do we be as the people, as the body of Christ, a people which lives with a distinct impression that the kingdom of God has come near? God wants to do this through us. Let us offer this peace to a world that truly needs us. As we look at our world, much of it, including ourselves, are drowning in anxiety and stress. This is, these are some of the most common words I hear every week. A few weeks ago, I was on the phone with Pastor Drew. Hopefully, he's okay with me sharing this story. I did not get it approved beforehand. But for those of you who do not know Pastor Drew, he used to be on staff here for many years and is now the head of the Covenant Christian School here in town. And he told me on the phone how bad the anxiety is that pervades the lives of those he works with. People are anxious. They're filled with stress about so many things. And so he talked about how so much of his time as the head of the school is just walking with families and their children through anxiety and stress. Yet he also told me how, enjoy, how much he enjoys this chance to be pastoring families in their deep stress in ways that can share this peace that we have in Christ. For most of you, I think that this will ring true for your own lives and for the lives of those around us. Few of us can probably say of ourselves, our families, our friends, and our neighbors, that peace is truly something that we feel and know and share with others on a regular basis. And yet, in a few minutes, as we head to the communion table, we will hear Pastor Jonathan say, the peace of the Lord be always with you, to which we will respond as a congregation. Let us share in this peace of Christ today. Let us feel it in our spirits. Let it comfort our anxious souls and quell this stress which keeps us from this vital ministry that God is calling us to do.
let us go out and share with others this beautiful peace, this shalom of Christ's kingdom that we have come to, share, to cherish. If we live out this call going forward to be a community of sharing the gospel, of sharing in weakness and sharing peace, I think that we will be amazed at how much Christ uses us to bless each other and the community around us. May people say when they get to know us, the kingdom of heaven has truly come near. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We ask that you'd speak to each of our hearts with those words that you have for us. Please empower us to be this community, this worshiping missional community of faith, which shares the gospel, which shares in our weakness and shares in peace. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.